Well, good morning, church. It is good to be with you this morning. I should say church family. Becca and I have been just looking forward to seeing you all. Uh, We do see you as our uh, extended long-distance family. Um, So, uh, in fact, uh, a few, uh, one of our friends has just moved up here. So, uh, thank you for taking care of our church family. Um, It's a joy to be here with you, uh, but even more so to be in the Word of God together with you. So, if you would, please grab your Bibles, turn to Philippians 1. Philippians 1, verses 3 through 11 is going to be our passage this morning. Um, So, if you'll just turn there with me. I'm actually going to pick up in verse 1, just grab the context while we're there. Please read along with me if you have your Bible. The word of God reads, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it's only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, Lord, Lord, we're happy to be here as your people this morning to to worship you, to hear from your word uh, those precious undying truths that you've delivered to us so that we can be edified so that we can open our eyes a bit wider to see your glory more rightly so that we can learn our marching orders for this brief stint on this world even as we sang about lord we are almost home with you equip us now for the work that we have left to do until that day we pray for our brothers and sisters um, in the world and certainly in this room this morning Um, lord use us for your glory and for your purposes And we pray that it would all redound to your glory and praise in Christ. Amen. Well, my friends, if if Gainesville is anything like Jacksonville, then there is just a lot going on these days in our world, right? We've got so much information being thrown at us, so many things that we could be active in. Uh, There's a smorgasbord of events, activities, agendas, and causes right? Endless things to spend our efforts on if we would so choose. And along with that, there's not only information, but 
this new word out there, there's misinformation, right? People and parties vying for our attention and our time. Personal causes, social causes, political causes. Everything the world can throw at us is pulling us in different directions, screaming, uh, pay attention to me, spend your efforts on me. I'm the right thing to do or cause the back or party to spend yourself on. And just to be clear, right? none of those things are inherently wrong in and of themselves, are they? But in a world competing for your attention and efforts, it would be easy to spin all of our wheels on something that may not be particularly fruitful. I think we could see that. And maybe even uh, things that are distracting from our true mission that we've been tasked by Christ to do. So maybe just as we open our time together this morning, a good question to ask ourselves might be simply this. What have I been pouring my efforts into lately? Am I acting like a soldier in the battle? Or maybe just a civilian in the cafe, or as Brandon put, the, you know, the barracks. You know, are, we, are we in there? Are we, are we working in the battle? And friends, uh, just to encourage you, from what I know of this church, from what I've heard from our, uh, our friends who visit you and even some who have moved here, uh, it's evident that you are growing and thriving in this area of being about the gospel ministry as you go about your lives. But healthy churches like Grace Bible Church and like Grace Community Church in the, uh, what did you call it, the promised land of Jacksonville? <laughs> that eastward city. Um, and even the church in Philippi, they need, we all need to be stimulated in this area of mission-mindedness. All right, and so, so lest, we begin, uh, lest we begin to get distracted by those things that could easily turn into something that the author of Hebrews would just call a, a weight of encumbrance. Right? And things that just bog us down and distract us from what we've been commissioned to do by our king. So this morning, we're going to shore up our understanding of our marching orders, and we're going to drop right into Paul's letter to the Philippian church as he's seeking to spur them on. And as we do, we're going to see a couple of things. Two worshipful responses to fruitful gospel ministry. And that's two worshipful responses to fruitful gospel ministry. Uh, in, in fact, given the uh, permeating theme of our text this morning, I, I've gone ahead and named our sermon, A Life Consumed with Gospel Ministry. We're going to drill into those two worshipful responses specifically, though, and we'll see that uh, pretty clearly outlined in our text. If you notice, verse 3 begins with a reflective thanksgiving for fruitful ministry, and he, he explains the reason for his thankfulness. You'll see that um, in uh, verse 5, in verse 6, um, and, and, and on down the line. And then in verse 9, he shifts to tell them not specifically why he's praying for them, but now what exactly he's praying for them. And he's going to give a prayer for continued growth and fruitfulness. And as we move along in those uh, points in our text this morning, my prayer is that we would be conformed in a couple of ways. Firstly, I would desire that we all together would be conformed to the content of what Paul is praying for, uh, through the Spirit of God for these believers in Philippi. Right? That in the same way that the Philippians were to be spurred on to a greater encouragement and faithfulness, well, in the same ways, we should also be striving in those. So we want to we take notes and, and conform our lives to that. And, and then secondly, 
as I'm encouraged that we're already doing this morning, I would desire that we would take up a more steady prayerfulness for our churches in these ways. In the same way that we are responsible to conform to the content of the prayers we see in Scripture, so are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we owe it to them in love, do we not, to be praying that our Lord would use them to the praise of his glory. So with that framework in mind, let's spend a a bit of time just considering what exactly led to the writing of this letter. The, The Philippian church had its beginning in the book of Acts 16. Maybe you're familiar with it, but Paul and Silas, they went through the places that they had planted some churches and Um, and they went to see how those churches were doing. Uh, It's one of their well-known trips, and they wanted to strengthen and encourage those churches in the Lord. While they were on that journey, though, unexpectedly, Paul received a vision from the Lord. Uh, It was a man from Macedonia essentially saying, hey, come over here and help us. Well, obediently, they, they went to Philippi, which, after all, was a leading city in Macedonia, right? And, and when they got there, There was no synagogue, no corporate place of meeting, but what there was is just some faithful, believing women who got together to pray regularly. Um, You remember this beautiful verse uh, regarding the Philippian woman, uh, Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul, and then she was described as uh, she and her household were then baptized into the church of Christ. And later, Paul and Silas were, were put in jail in Philippi, and, and, and God miraculously opened the, the cell doors. You know the story, I'm sure. But the jailer was converted when he heard how one could be saved from the wrath to come through Christ, through their testimony. It was told that the, uh, the entire jailer's household was baptized, believed the gospel, baptized into the church. And then after they got out of prison, that is Paul and Silas, they visited Lydia again, Uh, They strengthened those who were left in the city. Uh, They encouraged them and they left. And that was the birth of the church of Philippi. That's this church. Uh, Paul would have visited them a couple extra times in in Acts 20. They're spoken of in 2 Corinthians 8. You know, the the churches who gave, the Macedonian churches who gave even unto their own hurt. Philippi was a Macedonian church. And and I say all this, not to give you just some background on Philippi, but, but so that you would see that this is a fruitful healthy church. Paul knew this church. He was encouraged by this church. And now, fast forward, and Paul is in prison in Rome, and he is awaiting the trial that decides whether he's going to live or die. And who is on his mind in those last moments? It's the Philippians. In part, this was probably because they sent provisions to him while he was in prison there. But additionally, and I would say probably primarily, he wanted to encourage these saints in Philippi because they were so evidently devoted to the gospel ministry. Out of anyone, he needs to update them on the progress of the gospel. Uh, Imagine, if you would, that your beloved pastor Brandon, if he was taken to prison for his gospel boldness, may it never be, uh, but Knowing this church and the testimony of this church, you would probably be sending him every provision that you could to make sure that he was cared for in his stay, would you? And that's what happened here. Imagine that anticipation that the Philippian church would have had when they opened up Paul's letter and he tells them, hey, I'm praying for you. 
and that he's so thankful for their partnership in gospel ministry. And he starts to give an update on how the gospel is spreading. Even in the midst of prison and hardships, he encourages them to be striving continually more and more. Not only has Paul heard of the Philippians' faithfulness, but they're even tangibly supporting him. All right? Even when to associate with a prisoner like him, that would have been shameful culturally. And so seeing their fruitful gospel ministry evidenced both in their actions and their reputation, he writes them to shepherd them from afar. And what is the first thing that he does? He expresses his thanks to God for what he is doing in them. Look closer with me at our two worshipful responses. The first, as we mentioned earlier, is a reflective thanksgiving, and that's in verses 3 through 8. First, Paul just simply states a plain fact. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Your translation might say, uh, in all my mention of you. In essence, he's referring to prayer. When Paul heard of the faithfulness of the Philippians church, of the Philippian church, he saw evidence of their faith at work. His first thought was not to write back to them saying, thank you, Philippians, but rather something much more profound and meaningful. The idea here being, every time that I make remembrance of you to my God, I thank him for you. That poses the question, who gets the credit for ministry faithfulness, church? Our God, who is at work in us for the praise of his glory. And that is just so instructive for us as we peer into the mind of God on the text of Scripture and see that indeed all things ought to result in his praise and thanks. And this is going to be just a major theme in our text. So he does well to lay the groundwork at the outset. So did, did any of you notice that just little possessive pronoun in there? I think my God. Certainly that uh, reveals a personal relationship with God and uh, we don't want to minimize that. But also, and I would say probably here, it's an acknowledgement from Paul that he actively thinks about the fact that he and the Philippians share the same master, the same God. When uh, Charles Spurgeon was a a young man leaving home for the first time, his his grandfather um, loved him dearly. He he instructed him, he said, anytime that you miss us, you're thinking of us, go outside, look at the moon. Uh, It was meant to give him encouragement and comfort, knowing that his loving grandfather was under that same moon. Well, in a similar way here, we could say that Paul found comfort that his God was their God. They're under the same Lord. And Paul may have been in prison, but he was filled with thankfulness when he remembered that God is not in prison, and he is caring for and growing his church. But even more than that thankfulness, he reveals his heart is actually filled with, notice, joy when he makes those prayers to God. Verse 4, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In every prayer that Paul would offer up for the good of the Philippians, he was joyful. Right? He, he could have just said, 
uh, in every prayer. But notice he also reiterates that twice, always in every prayer. The idea being, without fail, every time that Paul prayed for the Philippians, he made that prayer with joy. That means his, his prayers weren't just out of mere compulsion. And he wasn't just talking to the, the leaders or the so-called ministry elites either. Take comfort in that. When his, fill, his joy was filled, it was because he was praying for the sake of, quote, you all, he says. Remember how he started the letter. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. You, you, do you know what fueled the joy of the Apostle Paul? And would mention that it is also worth the Holy Spirit inspiring into Scripture so that we would have it. It's, that joy was fueled by remembering that the whole church is working side by side, shoulder to shoulder, uh, the whole church, leadership, lay people like you and me, everyone working together for the gospel ministry, the advance of the gospel in this world. And that's not to say that everyone in the Philippian church was perfect. Certainly they weren't. In fact, in chapter 4, Paul goes on to urge the ladies, two of the ladies in Philippi, to uh, be harmonious, think the same way. The inference there is that they were not being harmonious. They were not thinking the same way. Um, the Philippian church was not a perfect church. In fact, we're not going to ever see one of those until we are in the presence of our Lord. But the Philippian church was one that caused Paul to rejoice every time he went to pray for them. Man, don't we want to be that kind of church? The kind of church that would fill the hearts of those who are praying for us? with joy, that we would reflect that we are striving to be pleasing to the master who bought us. Well, it just so happens that Paul is going to give us a few reasons as to why he's so abounding in joy at the thought of Philippi. And so we would do well to emulate these things. As he recounts reasons for his thankfulness to the Lord for this church, we ought to take notes and strive all the more in these areas. And we'll spend a good amount of time in this section this morning. The first that he gives is, uh, the first reason that he gives for his joyful manner in prayer is, verse 5, making my prayer with joy in view of your participation or partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That word translated participation in the New American Standard or, or partnership in the ESV is literally fellowship. The idea being not merely uh, that they partake in the gospel, but rather they are partaking in actively participating in the gospel. Actively. In the fullest sense, Paul is rejoicing because he knows that this church has partnered with him in the gospel ministry since the very inception of the church. And that this gospel partnership continued until the very day that he was writing this. Specifically here, he's referencing their gospel ministry. And uh, just get all of the cards on the table. There's a lot of confusion regarding what constitutes an actual gospel ministry these days, isn't there? Question. Can you partner in something that you do not have a healthy understanding of? Can you at least partner effectively? The answer is no. 
Right? And really, the world tries to pull us in so many different directions on this. And we're tempted to just kind of tack the word gospel onto the end of whatever we want to be involved in. That's, that's the current trend. Have, maybe you've heard things like social justice gospel or the prosperity gospel. And friends, these are not gospels at all. Uh, or maybe to some, the idea of the gospel is maybe just, well, you know, I, I'm a good person generally, but of course I need a little help. Let this just be your, your daily reminder that there is no gospel in that statement. The gospel isn't do better, be better, name the name of Christ while you go. But ask yourself, are you involved in active gospel participation? Do you preach to yourself daily the glory of God, the sinfulness of your own self, and then throw yourself on the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ? as your atoning substitute for anyone who would look on him and believe. As you look at your life, are you actively, compassionately sharing the good news of what Jesus has done for sinners like you and me? And as you do this, are you striving to put off sin and to put on his will and way in order to further his kingdom purposes? For, for any who might need the reminder this morning, uh, myself included, being a Christian is not a spectator sport. We need to be compassionately, worshipfully obedient in active gospel ministry. If Paul were praying for you, as he was praying for the Philippians, would he be filled with thankfulness as he watched your life? And notice, right, these Philippian believers, they weren't, they weren't casual or sporadic in gospel mission-mindedness either. And Paul says that he derives joy because of their participation in the gospel, quote, from the first day until now. So not only have they been partners in the mission since the birth of the church in Acts 16, but they've been consistent gospel partners. And that doesn't mean that they've always been perfect participants, but they have been consistent participants. Right? Not that they've been immaculate, but they've been faithful. And we see, as we let the word of God shepherd us, I'm encouraged by the reports of faithfulness that I hear about your church, honestly. Um, it's, it's a real spur to stimulate me to a further faithfulness, and I hope that it is to you as well. Uh, but healthy churches like yours and like ours back home, we could probably all think of ways that we can be probably more consistent in doing that kingdom work. You, you know your church body better than I do. Do you see a growing love, a growing care, a growing zeal for the Lord, and a compassion for the lost? I see that from the outside. Uh, we really need to work at cultivating these things, though, don't we? It's, it's not passive. But as we see those inadequacies, and we all have them, uh, we, we've got shortcomings and sometimes flat-out stubbornness, if we're honest. Paul quickly addresses another reason that he's joyful uh, for, for in his intercession for this church. And, and in many ways, I think that's the answer to our grief when we see our own inadequacies. So it's kind of the wind beneath our wings when we feel those shortcomings. He says, for I'm confident of this very thing. The original literally reads, having been convinced of this very thing, 
He's, he's continuing this flow of thought, giving another reason for his joyful prayer for them. Uh, in essence, why am I making my prayer with joy? Because of your consistent, ongoing partnership in the gospel work and because I have been convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Once again, Paul doesn't immediately point to the Philippians as the focus, but on him who began a, work, a good work in them. The, uh, the construction having begun, it's uh, only used once elsewhere in the New Testament, and that's in Galatians 3, 3, where uh, Paul's actually rebuking the, the Galatians. Sounds like your men are, will get there soon. Um, he says, are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In both instances, that, that phrase, having begun, is referring to the same thing. Uh, the good work of the Spirit that we call salvation. And not only has the Spirit of God sanctified believers unto God, but see here, he's also continuing that work. And the one who began the good work in you, Christian, will Bring it to completion. If you're like me, then this is a classic, well-worn, well-loved verse in your Bible. It, it is dear to me. It should be dear to you. Uh, it reveals to us that not only had God set a part of people for his own possession, but once he has, he doesn't just wind us up and, and leave us to figure it all out on our own. Right? No, God himself set us aside for his purposes, and God himself is seeing to it that we are progressively growing in holiness, that we are growing in our devotion and fruitfulness to him. And friends, isn't that a comfort to you? Listen, we still sin, we still fall short, we still grieve our holy God in ways that can often discourage us. But Christian, Aren't you so glad that God's not done with you yet? Oh, and instead of just leaving us to figure it all out, he's going to bring that work to completion. That, that word uh, perfect can be translated in a few different ways. In, in Greek, it's the idea of completing or perfecting, and your translation might show that. The standard uh, biblical Greek dictionary defines that word as, quote, to finish something which was begun. End quote. We would say, the one who started you is going to finish you. And God doesn't just leave his work incomplete like a child that loses interest in a Lego set halfway through building it. Right? He's going to continue to complete that work until the day of Jesus Christ. You may have a different translation uh, other than the New American Standard, and, and it's possible that it says, at the day of Jesus Christ in your translation. Uh, and those translations are, are awesome. It's great, but I got to point your attention back to the New American Standard. It really nails this translation. The Greek word is until, not at. In, in fact, it's translated that way uh, quite often. Um, to use the word at, it, it's, it's not theologically wrong. It's not, um, it's not a, a bad translation. It picks up on an implication which is that if God is completing his work in us until the day of Christ, then it would be logically true to say that we will not be fully complete until that day, at that day. So that's theologically true. Um, 
Man, but there is a comforting nuance in the original that the New American Standard has brought out for us. We don't just have a far-off hope of one day being sanctified, hopefully someday. But see here, God is actually, truly sanctifying us progressively until that day. It means he's active now. And sure, sometimes, you and I know all too well, it can be two steps forward, one step back. Uh, but Christian, are you growing? And have you thanked the Lord for that growth recently? Remember that uh, Galatians 3 passage we just referenced? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The implied answer being no. Well, here, having begun by the Spirit, you are now be perfected, being perfected by the Spirit. And that was enough to fill Paul's prayers with joy. And really, it should fill our prayers with joy too. When you're sitting across uh, from the table, uh, from that young man or woman that you're discipling and, and, and you've been meeting with them, don't be disheartened by every immaturity or, um, or even sin that, that comes up. Instead, be encouraged. If they're truly in the Lord, he will complete his work in them. When you sin in your own life, right, don't, don't wallow in it, but be like the man in Proverbs 24 who, though he falls, he gets back up. Because the Lord sustains him to grow. But then Paul leaves one last reason for his joy in intercession for those believers. In verse 7. For it's only right for me to feel this way about you all. Again, that, that, that's another reason for joy in prayer. Put simply, he has joy when he prays for the Philippians because, well, it's right for him to. It's right for him to think this way about them. And he explains why it's right for him to think this way as well. Because I have you in my heart. Isn't it true, Christian, that when God has poured his love into your heart, that you, in turn, you love those whom he loves? When you're saved, didn't the affection for the true church of God grow to a level that you really didn't even think was possible? And I love the simplicity of this statement. It's right for me to have joy in my prayer when I pray for you, beloved, because I have you in my heart. It's by God. And he reiterates to them something that he's already said, but he restates it just to make sure he gets the point across here. I have you in my heart because you are all partakers of grace with me. This is a, a form of that word uh, participation or, or fellowship again that we saw earlier. Before he said his joy was derived from their partnership in the gospel work. They partake with him in the gospel work. Here he says that they are in his heart because of their partnership. Because they are fellow partakers with him of grace. I believe that grace here, um, while it can be used in many ways, Specifically here, he's using it as the grace of ministry. And the Lord's sustaining grace to do the work that Paul is so clearly focused on in this passage. And we can see that from the immediate context as well. The grace is manifested in that they partake with him both in his imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. It doesn't necessarily mean that they went to prison with him. 
but they're not breaking ties with him. Even when he is shamed publicly for his steadfast grip on the gospel truths, which the world opposes, we've seen that, it, it's, it's worth asking ourselves in light of this, do we consider doing gospel-focused work a grace? Even in the face of imprisonment and all else, would we stand to defend and confirm the gospel? We prayed for that strength this morning. You really want to dial in and get into your kitchen a little bit. Are you even doing that now? One thing we know, you know we, we may not know exactly what we would do or say in that moment, but the grace of God is sufficient, and we can take joy in that. What exactly does it mean to have someone in your heart, though, in a, in a good and virtuous way? Well, as Paul so often does in this letter, he points to Jesus as the example. Notice our next verse. For God is my witness how I long for you all with of Christ Jesus. Paul's longing for this group of believers in, with Christ as his example. Fueled by Christ's actual love and affection for them. And take note that this was not a trite expression of affection. The Greek word uh, translated affection here is actually literally bowels. It's, the affection is welling up from the innermost part of him. One commentator pointed out that since it is no longer Paul who lives, but Christ who lives in him, then it is no longer with the affection of Paul that he yearned for them, but with the affection of Christ himself. I love that. I, I don't know about you, but... I, I absolutely need to be reminded to affectionately care about people with the heart of Christ. Seeing his blood-bought bride doing his will ought to fill our hearts with the utmost joy and affection, shouldn't it? As Paul wraps up telling these believers why he's so thankful and joyful when he prays before the Father for them, he goes on to tell them just exactly what it is that he's been praying for them. That first worshipful response to fruitful gospel ministry that we saw was a reflective thanksgiving for fruitful ministry. Um, we just walked through the reasons that he gives thanks to God. Now we're going to move into that second worshipful response. Prayer for continuing growth in fruitfulness. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, we won't spend quite as much time at this point uh, but after gushing in thankfulness to God, Paul's next priority is to tell the Philippians that he is continually praying for them. Notice the present tense of verse 9. He could have just said, hey, yeah, when I was praying for you, this is what I prayed. But instead he says, and this I pray. He's still praying. You know, what, a, what a shot of adrenaline it is when, when you hear from a saint that you love and respect, they tell you that they're praying for you. Especially when you consider that someone to be a, a, something like a shepherd to you. I mean, can you imagine just the Philippian church? They're leaning in while this letter was read aloud to the church. He just spent five verses explaining why he's thankful and joyful when he prays for them. And so that anticipation is building. What is it that this godly shepherd is praying from his prison quarters in Rome 
as he reflects on this beloved church. Verse 9, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. What's most on this shepherd's heart is that love would be increasing among the church. But not some shallow, superficial love. Not a love, but a love, instead, according to knowledge and all discernment. This love, they weren't devoid of it. This is not a corrective. In fact, uh, the very fact that he's praying for it to abound still more and more means that God is bearing fruit in them in this realm already. But Paul is eager to see them thrive in this realm. But what, what, what actually is this love? That begins my second sermon. I'm just kidding. No, we're not, we don't have all day to spend on unpacking the love of God in his church. I wish that we did, but I want to get to that potluck. Um, so suffice it to say, though, that love according to the world's definition is not love according to God's definition. And you, you've seen that by way of experience. It's testified in the scriptures. The world may say that it's loving to let someone maybe, quote, be who they really are without any warnings or calling to repentance or appeals to the Lord's holy standard. Sometimes the, the world practices the, the following kind of false love, and it's nuanced, so follow with me. It, it goes like this. Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you, so that they will do it unto you as you've done it unto them. What started off good was ruined with the so that, uh, which turned it into just a self-centered manipulation. Whether you state it explicitly or just expect it in your heart. And, and just like the rest of the fruit of the Spirit, true biblical love cannot be produced by the world because it's produced by the Spirit of God who is at work in believers. And that's why Paul modifies his sentence here with that little preposition, in. That your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Real knowledge here being a word that describes the understanding of principles. We could say in context, biblical principles. And to flesh that out just a a little bit, consider maybe you're meeting with somebody and they admit that they're having a hard time loving somebody in the church specifically, or maybe even their family. Maybe you ask them this question, hey, what does the Bible say about this? Do you know any particular scriptures which would speak to this battle that you're in? In a sense, by asking that of them, or even of yourself, you're training to love with knowledge. This means that contrary to the way that the rest of the world thinks and even demands, the Christian's definition of love is not merely to just accept every way of life that anyone wants to live and not make waves. Loving someone doesn't look like silently watching as they run headlong into danger and sin. In fact, the Christian, if he's loving according to knowledge, loves someone enough to tell them when they are walking contrary to Scripture. 
The Christian who loves with knowledge also loves someone enough to forgive them because of the knowledge of how abundantly they've been forgiven themselves by God. The Christian who loves with knowledge is thinking through the grid of Scripture as they consider how they can best love that person or group. I'm sure that you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul says there to another church, hey, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. A familiar verse. Well, the knowledge in that verse that puffs up is a knowledge devoid of love. It means a knowledge which has no practical outflow into loving one another. But in our verse, that love is firmly rooted in good and virtuous knowledge of the truth. And so we ask ourselves again in this, how are we doing, brothers and sisters? Am I, are you loving according to real biblical knowledge? But then secondly, he mentions the love is also to be according to all discernment. The word uh, speaks broadly of a practical application of the aforementioned knowledge. The original word has a connotation of of a moral understanding. If knowledge is the understanding of the principle, discernment in this passage means to know how that principle applies in any given situation. It's the outflow of that knowledge that doesn't just stop at, hey, what does the Bible say? Rather, it goes beyond to the point of, okay, now that we know what the Bible says, what would it look like to actually live that out of my life? And, and there's a beautiful simplicity here if we can keep it, keep it in the front of our hearts and minds. If you want a biblical definition of loving the church family, knowledge and discernment, know your Bible and think about how it applies to life that God, to the life that God has allotted to you. But Paul and God, knowing that we both, we both need reminding and motivation to this end, Paul reveals the motivation for that growing biblical love. Notice verse 10. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ. This is the purpose of biblically defined love in a believer's life. One commentator said it really well, so I'm just going to let him speak to you as I read it. He writes, The purpose of this love, increasing in knowledge and tact, was that they might be able to distinguish the really important issues in their lives together and to act on the basis of such distinctions. The word approve It means to make a critical examination of something. So the idea here is simply that that Paul was desirous that these believers not only would know the biblical principles and how to apply them to their lives, but that they would actually be living those things out in their lives. He's hitting the same idea here from, from different angles, and he's driving home that same point that Christian Faithfulness is not about knowing the right answer or knowing about what you ought to do. Faithfulness puts feet and practice to your theology. In the, in the small group that I'm a part of back home, um, we've been spending a lot of time on James chapter 1, verse 22, which says, Be doers of the word, 
not hearers only, catch this, deceiving yourselves. I think about the amount of times when I know the biblical way to love somebody and I know how to live lovingly within the body of Christ. But you know what? If I'm not careful and if we're not careful, it would be easy sometimes to just stop right there and not actually be an effectual doer of what it is that God in his word tells us to do. So we're left to ask this, leaning on the edge of our seat, what is it we're supposed to do? And that's what's revealed in that next term, the things that are excellent. In the simplest sense, that just means what is best. So in a world of distractions, which would divide our attention from the mission that God has set us on, in a world which has many good things, also many seemingly amoral things, and many subtly or even blatantly evil things, God expresses his concern that the Christian would devote their attention to the best things. And he's already gave his cards away uh, in, a, in a broad sense earlier when he was rejoicing in their commitment to the gospel ministry. True gospel ministry. Isn't fruitful gospel ministry truly what is best? I can't think of another answer to that question. Isn't that better than spinning all of your wheels on endless debates or politics or fruitless pursuits or letting your, way, your days slip away into just amusement and idleness? Paul's not trying to be subtle about this. Really, he goes on in the rest of the letter to show what those excellent things can look like in different situations. Chapter 1, verse 12, he begins to extol the advancement of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 27, he instructs them to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Chapter 2, using Christ's ultimate example, he urges them to live humbly amongst each other and to consider each other more important than themselves while striving in sanctification. Later in chapter 2, he tells them how to live among outsiders, unbelievers, so that they would have ample opportunities to proclaim the gospel without hypocrisy. Chapter 3 introduces how to be discerning against false teachers, and so keeping the gospel ministry pure, undefiled. The list actually goes on, but I'm serious about the potluck. I'm going to try to get you out of here. So I encourage you, read, read your copy of Philippians uh, later today and just get a taste of what some of those excellent things are that you can apply to your life and commit yourself to. Again with me at our text. We get to see the result of living out the principles that we find in God's word. The result is, verse 10, sincerity and blamelessness. Living according to the commands, the warnings, the examples and promises of God, if properly believed and acted upon, will lead to increasing godliness in your life. To be sincere, it's often translated pure, it's an unadulterated, unmixed state of being. This doesn't mean that you would be in a perfect state, but growing in a state to that end. Remember, verse 6 said that we're still in process of being perfected. We are not yet. But Christian, are you growing in your sincerity, your purity of doctrine, and your purity of living? Or in a sense, 
like the Israelites of old. Do you claim the Lord as your God, but you do a little bit of worshiping in the high places on the side? Right? This is a call to examine ourselves, friends. And that blamelessness, which results from focusing on what is excellent, is best described as a commitment to put off any sin which would cause you or anyone else to stumble. The primary emphasis on the sin that causes is the the sin that causes others to stumble. But we also know from the testimony of Scripture that if you are sinning against somebody else, you are absolutely sinning against God. But here, isn't it a good litmus test of our hearts to see that this has primarily to do with the horizontal blame, that, that sin against others? Can we say that we are striving to be blameless with regard to our sins against other people? To turn that on its head a little bit, are you lovingly warning and telling the world that's passing away about our Lord? If we walk backward through that verse, it would be fair to say that if we are not biblically thinking about how we can commit ourselves to the best, most excellent things, then we're not sincere and blameless. But Paul's exhortation is not a a, a correction. Remember, the Philippians church was faithful. It was meant to be an encouragement. Philippians, you are doing this. Excel, still more. Grace Bible Church, I hear that you're doing this. Excel, still more. Why should we be so focused on living pure and blameless lives? Well, as verse 10 continues, notice, quote, until the day of Christ. This is a different word for until than was used in verse 6. If you have a New American Standard, notice the footnote says for, uh, F-O-R. I think that's a better translation to this word. Um, The best way I know how to explain this statement is you're doing this in preparation for the day of Christ, for the day of Christ. Striving to grow in love in the realm of knowledge and discernment so that you can choose the most excellent things to concern yourself with, and thereby rendering yourself sincere and blameless in preparation for the day of Christ. I I love this. Christian, if you are like me, sometimes it's easy to let our hearts get kind of bogged down in the Christian life. I've internally heard myself say, wow, this is hard. (laughs) Wow, this dying to self actually hurts. No wonder Jesus said it's like picking up a cross. Oftentimes, sadly, that's because my my gaze goes inward to self. And and friends, the Spirit of God, through Paul's writings, lifts up our eyes to the one who gives rest to the weary and heavy laden. So why why are we exerting so much effort to to do the things which are pleasing to the Lord? We're doing it in preparation for the day of Christ. I, uh, I have a, a picture uh, hanging in my study. It was taken of, uh, of Becca during our wedding as she's going up the aisle. She's next to her dad. She's still got her veil on. She's radiant, beautiful, glowing. And I have that picture in my study, number one, because I love her, and that was a special moment for us, but also because of what it pictures. According to the scriptures, the church is the bride of Christ. And he's the bridegroom. L- listen to Revelation 
John was given revelation of what the last days would be like. And he's writing to, of those events which transpire on the day of Christ, that same day of Christ that we read about. Revelation 19.7 reads, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, that is God, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. It seems to me, given the amount of times that Paul emphasizes the day of Christ in this very short letter, that's three times scattered throughout, he had his eyes always fixed on that day. All his labors were spent diligently trying to prepare the church, the bride of Christ, for the day when she will be united to her long-awaited Savior at the marriage supper of the Lamb. we got to ask ourselves a few key questions with that example in mind. Am I, am I so fixed on the day of Christ that I am eagerly doing whatever I can to prepare myself for that blessed day? Am I actively renewing my mind in the scriptures daily, soaking in the glorious theme of God's coming kingdom? Does that affect the way that I daily live? Or do I give little thought to that day at all, really? Am I so fixed on the day of Christ that when I look around me and I see other brothers and sisters struggling, or maybe an unbeliever in need of the gospel, do I expend myself for their sake so that they would one day approach the Lamb like a bride who's been prepared? This is the kind of character that Paul would earnestly and often petition the Lord to produce in the Philippians. It's the kind of character that we ought to be striving for in our own lives and in the lives of others. It's the kind of character that we ought to adopt, right? And, and, and why, you ask, will that day be so glorious? Why labor in all these things? That, that passage in Revelation mentioned it when it said that the church will be a bride adorned in the righteous deeds of the saints. And in our text, Paul calls it the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. That day will be glorious because we will be trophies of God's magnificent grace and righteousness. On the day of Christ, Jesus himself will stand looking on those whom he has saved and filled with the fruit of his righteousness and the glory will all redound to the praise of God forever. My friends, brothers and sisters, it's so long that we would be desiring and growing in our love with biblical knowledge and, and application, right? that we would be able to devote ourselves to what truly and eternally matters for the kingdom of God, right? and, and that we would be pure and blameless filled with the fruit of his righteousness. Again, that doesn't mean we can expect to be perfect the sight of heaven. But it sure does mean that the righteousness imputed to you and planted in you will actually bear fruit as proof positive that you have, that you will be seen righteous on the day of Christ. The righteousness doesn't come through doing good works, notice. But indeed, the righteous works come through Jesus. 
Are you dependent on Him to produce this fruit in your lives? Are you breaking a spiritual sweat knowing that He he is at work both in you and through you? And finally, are you praying that your brothers and sisters in Christ would be bearing this kind of fruit so that God would be glorified in them as well? And let's pray to that end together now. Would you pray with me? Father, oh Lord, we are humbled. We love your word. We love to hear from your mouth, Lord, the the words of eternal life. And so, Lord, as you have instructed us from your word to be doing that which you have commissioned us to do with love and faithfulness, we pray that this church, that Grace Bible Church, will be strengthened and growing, abounding still more and more in their love, specifically in real knowledge and all discernment. Uh, so that they would be able to see, to test, and to do those things which are best. Uh, And Lord, we pray that that they would and that we would prioritize your glory and your kingdom and even those whom you might save unto yourself to worship you forever because you're worthy. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Christ Jesus, your son, who's reconciled us to you. We want to magnify your name, so we ask for your help in Christ. Amen.